0: This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa.
1: And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age.
0: Salams and hello. I'm Anissa and it has been a while. Life and work has been exhausting, so our planned Eid break has been a little longer than we expected, but Khadija and I are back with our final conversation in this season of Muslim in Plain Sight. We thought the week of September 11th, one year after we started, would be the perfect time to say goodbye for now. In this episode, we share our reflections on the season, our thanks to our incredible guests, and to you, dear listeners, and sign off with our hopes for the future. A couple of notes for this episode. The Trojan Horse Affair got more than 13 million downloads in its first three and a half weeks, which is similar in scale to the number I mentioned, but I wanted to cite the exact number. And in the case of Shamima Begum, which we mentioned in the context of governments denaturalizing citizens... There have been new revelations in the last week about the involvement of Canadian intelligence agents in her entrapment. Color us unsurprised. As always, you can find links to what we reference in the show notes. And with that, let's have one last good talk. Don't be a stranger. I'm Anissa. And I'm Khadija. And it's been a while. It's been a long time. Yes. We, um, we took some time off for Ramadan and also to recover from our extremely hectic schedules. Uh, we had just been overworking ourselves to the point of exhaustion. Now we're back to sort of Give close our, things off. Yeah, kind of close off the season and just reflect on what the experience has been like and what's next, I guess. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've moved on from
1: this after having done it for sort of a straight, how many months was it? Six months?
0: Well, we started working on this like beginning of August. Mm-hmm. So it's been more than six months at this point because we're almost in June.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's been almost a year, crazily oh, enough. Time. Yeah. I don't know if I've moved on from it, but I do feel that I have, even though we didn't get to talk to everybody that we wanted to talk to, and we didn't necessarily get to cover every single, you know, aspect of life that we wanted to, but we did start out like very ambitiously, I do feel like we accomplished what we set out to do. Like we kind of, we did the thing and now I'm like happy with how much we did and Mm. I'm ready to stop talking about it. If you know what I mean, like not yeah. forever, but like I feel like we did For the now. deep dive therapy yeah. that we needed Absolutely. and kind of the, the, the truth telling and the historical record keeping and the, you know, all of that stuff that we talked about in episode one that we wanted to accomplish. I think we did most mm-hmm. of it. Right. Right.
1: And giving ourselves the space to feel the things we were feeling, especially the anger. And I mm-hmm. think that's something that we've talked about a lot with nearly all of our guests as well, actually, is. What do you do with all of that anger? And I feel like we've done something with that anger.
0: We we made this podcast. Absolutely. We made this podcast, we made some new friends, we talked to some yes. old friends. We You met one of them in person? Yes, I did. That was so, <laughs> so I went to Turkey for a very long uh a long postponed graduation trip that I had planned to do in 2020 with my family and um, only me and my mom ended up being able to go, but we finally went, alhamdulillah, and it was amazing. And what was really exciting is Dr. Khadija el Shayel, who we interviewed um, a few months back, is was actually still in Istanbul, and I met her in person, and that was really wonderful, and we missed you, Khadija. Well, you were one Khadija away. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Also, like when I was in Istanbul, I was like, I'm not that far from the UK. I know. <laughs> I'm like closer than I usually am. <laughs> it was like a weird geographical proximity feeling.
1: Next time in show. Yeah. And we got to meet some of our heroes, and
0: Absolutely. that was amazing. Yes. And I think one of the things that we wanted to do was feel like we had the space to talk about things that we hadn't felt like we were allowed to talk about before. And I think we really did give ourselves that space. We gave our guests that space. Our guests gave us that space. Um, Our listeners gave us that space. And that was really very wonderful and like very emotional, I think. Yeah.
1: I think part of why the last few months was so hard for us was that not only were we sort of physically doing the work of the podcast, but there was like a big emotional toll that it took doing it. Hmm. And... I guess that's why by, you know, by the end of our interview run, we were so worn out that we just needed to take some time for ourselves to sort of recover from that and take it all. in. And and we're here to sort of decompress
0: and (laughs) debrief, just so that we don't leave you all hanging. Yeah. And also, like, what's changed since we started this, Kalija? A few things have changed. You mean in in sort of the way the world is looking or? Oh, I meant personally. <laughs> but, uh, well, so I was not working full time when we started this project. Khadija has always been working more than full time. Bless her. I don't know how she does it. <laughs> um, but I started a new full time job in the middle of November. So that definitely meant that the amount of energy that we were able to devote to this was shrunken. And also because Mm -hmm. I was, uh, you know, I work as a podcast producer um, at WNC, which is my local NPR station. That's public radio if you don't live in the U.S. Um, Because I was doing this same thing at my day job, it suddenly felt like so much more work to do this on my weekends. (laughs) Um, But it's been really amazing. Like we did a cross promo with um, WNC's show, Me and My Muslim Friends. That was really exciting. What else has happened, Nita? One of the big things that happened after we released our
1: last episode was um, the Serial Podcast's new podcast, The Trojan Horse Affair, which I don't think there's anybody, at least in the Muslim world, who hasn't listened to it. And I'm pretty sure... I mean, it's Serial. Everyone listens to it. Yeah, Serial
0: and the New York Times. So, you know, that I think they got like something like five million downloads in the first week or something. Mm -hmm. Don't quote me on that. I'm just saying that from memory, but it's very Mm -hmm. similar to that. I actually listened to it way back
1: when it dropped, which I think was in February. Um, And I don't remember a lot of details right now. So... You listened to it much more recently than that. What did you think?
0: Yeah, so I actually like downloaded the whole thing to listen to during the traveling time that we had while we were going to (laughs) Turkey. So I Mm -hmm. kind of binge listened to it like the first couple of days of my trip, which was probably a strange time to do it. But I just didn't Mm -hmm. have any other time to listen to it. And I guess there wasn't really on one hand, it was a very surprising story because I hadn't heard of this before, like obviously, you know, living in London, you might have a different experience of this. For me, like it's local enough, even though it had national implications, it's local enough that I never got to hear about it. Mm -hmm. And so there was the story of the Trojan horse affair itself and kind of that unfolding of, you know, Hamza and Brian sort of digging into that and uncovering these details that the press had just not bothered to really dig into because of it didn't fit the narrative exactly yeah. and and they address that but then there was like this parallel story of the two of them kind of going on this journey of like Hamza kind of you know he's doing this at the end of his masters in journalism and he's kind of learning about the relationship between the journalist and the subject and how that's complicated when the journalist is part of the community That they're reporting on. And Brian was kind of grappling with this idea of objectivity that he'd kind of just
1: Mm.
0: always took as gospel and now is wondering if he needs to kind of unpack that and how that came out and the tension between that. So like that was, Mm. I don't want to say more interesting to me. They were both interesting. But I think the story with the Trojan horse affair was like It made me angry, but it also made me angry in a way that a lot of things have made me angry in the last 20 years. Like, there wasn't Mm -hmm. a lot. I mean, it is infuriating to hear these people say these things, you know, like on tape, (laughs) straight from the horse's mouth, like over and over again. The Trojan horse's mouth. Uh, Yes, exactly. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sorry, I apologize. (laughs) Put me back in the cupboard. (laughs) We got to have one pun in here. That's very on brand for us. You know, like. On the other hand, we've been hearing this kind of propaganda and uh, denial and sort of erasure from po- politicians repeatedly for the last 20 years. So, like, even though it's upsetting, it didn't make me angry in the way that, you know, Hamza was getting angry because for him, this was, I mean, I think he's probably a little younger mm-hmm. than us, Um mm-hmm you were saying Khadija, that from some of the references that he made it sounded like he was younger which like I wouldn't get as a non-british person um but he did sound angry in a way that you can tell that he hasn't been His as angry for yeah. as long as we yes. have so i'm guessing that just <laughs> means he's younger <laughs> you know yeah. um so so while that anger was very present like it wasn't really something new um what was Kind of new is to hear this tension between the reporter and the subject and how that like shaped the story in such a high profile podcast that is backed by such huge names, which I don't know that I've heard before. And I'm not one, I'm not a serial listener. So maybe Mm -hmm. serial did that too. And I just wasn't paying attention to that. But
1: you know what gets me is that it proves once again. That you can do all of the work, you can do all of the research, you can put in all of the time, you can present all of the facts, you can do everything like impeccably, but still you cannot make them listen and you cannot make them believe you even when it is clearly and undeniably a true and factual account of Mm. the thing.
0: Well, yeah. So when this verse came out, I didn't have a chance to listen to it right away, but I remember seeing some controversy around it. And I was like, okay, so why are people angry? So I kind of bookmarked a few things to read. <laughs> so after, immediately after I finished listening to the podcast, I went and looked up an interview, you know, that I had kind of vaguely recalled seeing Hamza and Brian give to an American outlet. And that was actually a Vulture article where they talked about mm. the, the response of British media to this or podcast. Or lack of
1: response even.
0: No, not a lot. No, of no, 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 no. They younger. very actively, right. yes. yeah. It was like yeah. extremely active. They basically backlash. did the
1: same thing. <laughs> they yeah. gaslit the entire story, and like at the time that the actual um, Trojan horse letter thing was happening, they basically pulled out the same responses again. And it just it makes you, it makes you wonder what the point is of doing the work. Of sort of truth telling, and it also makes you realize, like you know, Islamophobia isn't an accident, and the system isn't broken. Everything is operating exactly as it's meant to. That's also been one of the underlying threads in in all of our previous episodes, is that we can agree that that is a conclusion,
0: right? And and you know, like I mean, you heard Hamza say it himself in that interview, and we'll link the interview that, like. Now he's questioning whether, you know, he left his career as a doctor to become a journalist out of like mm. the passion to kind of right the kind of wrongs that he saw, you know, journalists committing against his community. And he did this huge thing and it was so wildly successful and mm. and so many more people actually listened to it than almost any journalist Ever has a right to expect with their first Mm. project. I mean, it wasn't even his first project after graduating. It was a student project. Think about it. And it was so wildly successful. And yet, again, he's right in the same spot of, like, the same gaslighting and the same, Mm. you know, denials and the same accusations of, you know, uh, like lying and propaganda and, like... Making this right, and, and the same sort yeah. of, like, character assassination that that's what they fall back on, right? Because mm. they can't fight you with facts, so they just go to the root of, like, character assassination and innuendos and, like, mm. just all the and same just, garbage. And
1: playing on people's prejudices right. to discredit the, you know, the research and whatever work that they're presenting. And it's doing it by appealing to... I don't want to say emotions, but yeah, I mean, yeah, by appealing to their prejudices, by pulling out their racism, by leaning on the white supremacy, that's the only way you can sort of bypass logic and people's sense of rationality is just to go straight to the,
0: to, you know, the emotionally seated beliefs, It's kind of like what Chaplain Joshua Salam was talking, like, when we were talking to him, and he was talking about how, like, even if you wouldn't normally trust someone, because you know that they don't necessarily have their, you know, your best interests at heart, when there's, like, a bear coming at you, Mm. and the person's like, I'll defend you from the bear, then, like, you're like, sure, go ahead, shoot the bear, (laughs) like... (laughs) Mm. take over you know what I mean it's I Mm. I, I might be mangling the analogy (laughs) because I haven't gone back and listened to it you know in the last couple weeks but it's the thing that so much of this Islamophobia um, and so much of the policy and war mongering that has come out of post 9-11 rhetoric it's leaned so hard on this this panic and this Feeling That you have to do something immediately and that Mm -hmm. we don't have time and that, you know, we're in extraordinary circumstances. So we have to take extraordinary measures. And what that just does is just increased, you know, government security, increased control, increased, you know, like when they present it to you of like, oh, we have to take some of your rights away. Just mm. for a little while, for everyone's safety, like you're never going to get those rights back. Mm. You know, Zahra Bilu said that. She said once they take something away, they're never going to give it back, right. And once you give that up, it's really hard for you mm. to go back, you know, like like the the Department of Homeland Security is never going to go back into the bottle. It's just we it's part of our lives now. And it's not just targeting Muslims. It's militarized our police forces. ICE, you know, and CBP, those Customs and Border Patrol and um, and ICE, those are under Department of Homeland Security.
1: But also it doesn't stop there, because if you look at what's happening, for example, in the U.S. right now, I mean, the idea that Roe versus Wade can be overturned was unthinkable even five years ago. And so here's the thing. They came for us first, but they're coming for everyone else next. So. It's exactly what Zahra was saying. Like, you cannot let them pass at the first gate because then all the gates are going. Mm -hmm. And it becomes imperative, not just for Muslims, but for everyone to fight for the rights that everybody deserves. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Like, I'm looking at the US right now and it is just frightening. I'm I'm not looking at my own country because it's even more frightening because I live here. (laughs) But, you know... The idea that you can be imprisoned for having a miscarriage
0: and, you know, that's insane. It's just wild to me that the people who are so, I mean, on the face of it, they claim that they value human life so much Mm -hmm. that they don't even want to risk the possibility of killing what they consider to be like an unborn child even right after conception whatever I mean I'm not going into that but like that's the that's sort of the moral ground that they're claiming to stand on and yet these same people um are not willing to do anything to protect the lives of children who are being gunned down in schools like like I just like the overlap between those two groups like just boggles my mind and turns my stomach honestly like we're we're recording this two days after the uvaldi massacre so i'm just like i've just been reading the news and crying for the last like two or three days but but i want to kind of circle back to this this issue later on let's just kind of go through a few of the things like on this theme of like, is it even changing? Like, is anything really <laughs> changed? Can you, you made a list of like a few things uh, that happened yeah. after we released the Mansour Deyfi right. interview. So you want to just quickly are go changing? through those?
1: They're always changing. Things are constantly changing for the worse. And yeah, I mean, it was literally just the next day after we recorded with Mansour, um, There was the new thing with, you know, the hostile environment, which is like an immigration policy uh, in the UK, um, and that the UK government now has given itself the power to revoke citizenship of any British citizen without informing them. And, you know, the way, for example, someone like Shamima Begum, who, if you don't know, she was trafficked by ISIS um, when she was 16, I think, uh, maybe younger, I don't remember the specifics of that, but she was she was a child, she was a minor, um, and she has been stripped of her citizenship and she's been rendered stateless. Uh, this is what the British government can, can do and is doing now. It doesn't hesitate to use that. And then you had like, I think it was probably the day after that, um, we had a report about Angela Rayner, who is the deputy leader of the Labour Party, who is... Party that is not in power right now, so they're the opposition. And she was saying that you should shoot terrorists first and ask questions later. And that was what she wanted the police to do. And this idea that the position that we take against, uh, we call them terrorists, but we do mean Muslims. Uh, anyone who presents as a Muslim is automatically presenting as a terrorist or a potential terrorist. This It transcends party politics, mm-hmm. and that is the scariest thing.
0: Yeah, and it's not only in the UK. Just to clarify, um, Shamima Begin was approached by ISIS when she was 13, and she left the UK to join them when she was 15. Um, yeah, it's not limited to the UK. It's the same thing here. Like The one thing that both parties can get together on is how much they hate Muslims. They they'll they'll go against each other in every other way, but when it comes to Islamophobia, like it's like the difference between like charcoal and black. You know, like it might as well be the same color. Right. Don't mm-hmm. come at me, fashion people. <laughs> I know that's not <laughs> the same color, but you know what I mean, right? Like, right. Maybe black and black. Maybe the uh, way that it shows up is slightly different, but in essence. It's the same people, like, they're, they're supporting the same policies mm. and... Right, they may be different fabric, but the color is the same. Exactly. <sighs> yeah, sorry about the extremely belabored <laughs> fabric analogies. <laughs> um, so given all of that stuff that has happened since the last episode, with the knowledge that things are, the more they change, the more they stay getting worse... <laughs> let's uh, let's reflect on the, the season of Muslim in Plain Sight. Because I think there were things, like, I want to ask you, Khadija, like, what were your favorite moments? What were some things that surprised you? Like, what were things that, I don't know, what didn't surprise you? Like, can we talk about that a little bit? Well, it it both surprised and didn't surprise me that we all
1: carried those same emotions. Because partly, as we've spoken about in our previous episodes we have not been in the habit of speaking like specifically about what we spoke about over the series. So it was kind of an unacknowledged truth that we all carried. But to sort of be able to sit and compare notes, that was a really interesting experience because one, we knew we would have many of the same feelings and thoughts, but also we'd never actually openly talked about them together with people before. So that kind of unburdening was surprisingly really healing. It was cathartic. It was very. Yeah. And like, we spoke to such a variety of people, you know, some of them were extremely famous and some of them you may not have heard of until you listened to their episodes. But we all lived in the same feelings. We all inhabited that same world where these things were happening to us because of who we were. And we all had been doing things with our lives that were like a direct consequence of, of that thing. The way that we grew up, the burden that 9-11 had put on us as Muslims, and to sort of set out to do something with our lives that would uh, counteract the sort of the evil that we had yeah. faced in in coming up.
0: And it was like, none of us felt able to just live our lives without too much self-reflection, you know? Mm. And maybe and if, if we had grown up in a peaceful time, in a time where we were very comfortable, maybe we would have just, you know, life never goes exactly how you think it's going to go. That's just how life is. You know, Allah has his own plan. But maybe we wouldn't have had such an intense, self-evaluation of like, okay, what exactly am I going to do with my life? How is it going to mm-hmm. affect the world? How is the world impacting me? Like, I like I, I think we talked about this in our first episode. Like, this was kind of the moment of political awakening, not just for us, but like for our entire community in a way. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, as I heard you saying all of this about like how we were all kind of living in the same experience, we were, but it was so lonely. It was. It was so isolating. And we mm. all, I think one of the things that I was like, maybe it was just me, but I don't think it was just me. We were all feeling very alone. And it was really nice to not feel alone. And I think that's by
1: design. Absolutely. Like we were meant to feel alone. We were meant to feel isolated from each other. We were meant to feel cut off from the wider communities that we were in. But also, you know, the the suspicion that mm-hmm. had been planted sort of in our communities, the way that we were all meant to look at each other as suspects, the the fear through the guilt by association. Right. All of those things were real things. And the way
0: that we didn't have any safe spaces anymore. Right. And we still don't. Our mosques were not safe anymore. Our homes were not safe anymore. Our cars were not safe because, like, who knows? You might find a tracking device, in, you know, <laughs> under your car, and maybe an FBI agent might show up at your house two weeks later and be like, "I want that back." True story. Go back and listen oh, to our Zahra Belou episode. Or, you know, we, we knew our phones were tapped. We would hear the mm. click when we picked up the phone. You know, like so, there was no place that was safe except the inside mm. of your own head, and so you just kept it all inside your own yeah. head.
1: And the other thing is that now that it's been 20 years, you can chart how those things have sort of evolved into darker monsters, right? Like, for example, we've spoken a lot about the PREVENT program and how all of these things are designed to sort of steal away your sense of security and freedom. You you know, as a parent, you would be terrified of losing your children. And, you know, neither of us are parents. So Alhamdulillah, it's something we don't have to deal with. But I mean, every parent I know has to think about this. Like if my kid says something that is misunderstood or misinterpreted, that could lead to any number of things. Like, you know, you can lose your kid, you can, um, all sorts of things. I lost my lucidity for a moment there.
0: (laughs) It does though. It it leaves you speechless. It's because it's such a horrifying thing to do. And yet it's like, you know, I keep coming back to this. In some ways, our community is unique. In another way, it's not unique at all. Like that, mm. like the like white uh, colonial powers have been doing this for to indigenous people over mm. generations, like stealing away their children. Right, right. For living yeah. their own identities and their own cultures, mm. and and worshiping, you know, the way that they want to worship according to how they their ancestors worshipped. Like it's. It's like so much, like, it's so unoriginal because you other, like, racism <laughs> and white supremacy is so unoriginal, but it, yet it's so powerful. It just uh, makes but me also so it mad. Keeps,
1: it keeps sort of shifting form very yes. subtly. It hides itself in plain sight, you know, mm-hmm. to riff on the name of our podcast. It hides itself in plain sight, but it's the same game. It's the same rules. It's just ever so slightly different presentation so that the time that it takes you to recognize that this is that game you kind of ha- have already lost so much ground
0: yeah you know it annoys me when people call it a pandemic of racism because like it makes it sound like racism is naturally occurring like a like a disease or a virus but i mean this is a this is a way that you know it does kind of act like a virus where it's like constantly mutating for Mm. its own survival right Mm. like you know you kind of block it from one side and then it goes in another direction and like forms its own like adaptive coping strategies so it can like come back even stronger (laughs) and more subtly and
1: it's true
0: and more enduring and more persistent
1: it might not kill you but it will drag you down
0: right and yeah, and I guess the difference is this isn't an organism doing this for its own survival. It's people who benefit from that structure right. who are doing it to hold on to power, which is what makes it so insidious. Right. I think
1: one of the things that I've learned uh, a lot more about that and bearing in mind that like I come from sort of a science background and I'm not as versed in sort of politics and current affairs and, you know, that kind of thing. Just like understanding in a very granular way how capitalism is everything. Hmm. That's crazy. It's changed the way that I now look at the world, and like I can't unsee it anymore. So now anything will happen, and I'll say to my sister, "It's the evils of capitalism." <laughs> and it's true. Well, the and truth. also
0: like understanding that capitalism in the form that we have sort of globally. Entrenched it as a human race is very much tied up with racist structures, right? You know, exactly. because because the way that it spread was through, you know, chattel slavery mm. and um, exploitation, like colonial exploitation, right. labor so the, exploitation. So from its from its sort of earliest forms of you know the way it was globalized around the world, that's so intrinsic to that structure that like capitalism in a vacuum without any context might not be inherently evil you might argue about that one way or the other but the fact is the way that it's expressed in our society today it's it's sort of reinforcing and and you know like in islam if you if you want to go back to the way that islam views money and and wealth and business and all of that like we don't believe in a purely capitalist Mm -hmm. structure either because for us giving and um public service and public welfare is such a huge part of how we relate to money it's also not worshiping this idea of like what you have is what you own and deserve right right (laughs) which i think is the way a lot of people relate to money is that it's mine like once Mm -hmm. it's in my pocket it's mine and for us like it's never really ours. We just got to borrow it for a little while and we're going to be responsible for how we use it and how we spend it. Yeah. And
1: also, like, the idea of capitalism being only about money is not the whole story either because capitalism is also about labor and it's about... Absolutely. I mean, it is it is labor. It's based on how you can get labor for the lowest price or for no price.
0: Yes. So here's something that we wanted to talk about. Like, do you have any regrets? Is there anything you wish we had gotten to do that we didn't get to do? I think there were definitely some people I would have
1: loved to have talked to that we didn't get a chance to.
0: Yes. And this was kind of like a combination of like scheduling issues, people, you know, not being available when we were available Mm. or just not being in a place to do an interview right now or like us not being able to reach them or Mm. us being too tiny and new for someone to notice and reply to (laughs) us. Um, And just uh, like a lot of things, you know, and I feel like we kind of was what it was meant to be. But I do wish, Mm. you know, like we had gotten to talk to someone from Afghanistan. I really wish we had gotten to talk to someone who's you know, Palestinian, I wish that we had gone to talk to so many people who had experiences that were Mm. not represented on the podcast. But obviously, like, as we said, no story can cover everything Mm -hmm. and everyone has their individual stories. And what we wanted to do was, like, get enough voices together to kind of have a feeling of a collective, I guess. Mm. But I do feel that with everybody that we spoke to,
1: that we had... The best conversation we could have had, like they were so generous with, yes, their insights, their feelings, their experiences, their advices. It was
0: I don't think there's anything I could have wished for more in the episodes that we did, truly. I mean, we asked our guests like, thank you so much, guests. Like let's just take this opportunity for all of our guests, Like, thank you for being so vulnerable with us and so yeah. honest and like we asked a lot of hard questions and we would always be like, if you don't want to answer some of these questions and they were always like, no, we're here to yeah. you know like I'm here to answer whatever you want to talk about and um, that was really very generous and very an honor for us mm. um, and we really feel blessed that that we got to be part of that
1: and you know how it is that when you are with your people you can say things that you can't outside of that space and I felt that a lot from you know from many of our guests or from all of them in fact that our company was a, a sort of a safe space like you could say things to us and they were happy to say things to us that in a different environment they might not have said in the same way or been confident that they'd be understood like instinctively whereas they would say something, we understood it. Like they didn't need to explain. We didn't need to explain. And the freedom and lightness that comes from being able to have a conversation where you don't need to explain yourselves to each other, that is a very precious thing. Yes. And that's something that I think that we carry in real life as well. I mean, the conversations that we have presented in this podcast, they were recordings. They have been edited. But in our real lives we have those connections with people. And I think it's really important that we treat those as preciously um, as they deserve to be treated because, you Mm. know, these are our brothers and sisters in Islam. These are the people that, you know, we want to be raised with on the Day of Judgment, inshallah, the people who love Allah, who live for Allah. They're not um, worldly things. These are things that transcend sort of our basic grind of a life, right? And... To be reminded of that, I felt that we were reminded of that every time we spoke to someone.
0: Yeah, that it was like having that freedom to talk about the spiritual part of ourselves that like, mm. we often are Censor. not able to express right. in our daily lives just because it's usually a space where we, we kind of have to be maybe the only one in the room.
1: And also how naturally that censorship comes to us. And part of doing this project has been making a decision to not censor those parts. Because like, even as I'm speaking, I feel a reflex to sort of word things in a more like non-spiritual, non-religious kind of way. But like, no, if you want truly to be known and to be understood by people who do not share the same beliefs as you, uh, but also to be in company with those who do, I feel this phrase is very overused, but you need to say your truth.
0: (laughs) I really don't like saying that. (laughs) I I know what you mean about like consciously making yourself say things the way that they exist in your head instead of, you know, watering it down. And I think like this podcast has kind of been a process of like us retraining ourselves to do that because it's Mm. been trained out of us by the last 20 years of, you know, suspicion and Islamophobia and like, you know, somebody just kind of waiting for you to say something that they can jump on and be like, oh, you don't belong.
1: But also it's that thing um, that sometimes we are so used to doing that sort of dual identity thing that we don't realize often that actually it is okay for us to say things. Like when you decide to show a a part of yourself that you don't usually show to people, and then you find out, hey, that wasn't a big deal. Mm. (laughs) Um, But because we've internalized that, like we've internalized our own identity so deeply, we forget that the world actually has changed in many ways. And perhaps we are also sort of continuing that cycle of keeping things hidden when perhaps we don't need to. And I know that's not always the case, but I think sort of on a day-to-day basis, like on an individual level, we definitely do have room to be more Muslim than we used to be.
0: Well, I think, yeah, and I think it's about trust, right? Like code switching, which is basically what we're talking about, right, is code switching. It can be healthy, it can be useful, it can be utilitarian, you know, like you want to speak in the language that is most useful and most uh, inclusive to everyone in a particular situation. Like when you're trying to communicate with people, it's just practical to sort of use whatever common language you have with those people. But at the same time, there can be like a dark aspect to that of when you're coming into a hostile environment and the only code switching that you're allowed to switch into is this sort of dominant white supremacist way of speaking. (laughs) And yet at the same time, like, I do agree. These are like, there are spaces of trust where we can not worry about that. And they are very precious. And because that is based in trust, like you said. It's very important for us to like be mindful of that and to respect it and to honor it with each other. I feel really grateful that our guests trusted us enough to recognize that we would that we wouldn't do them that dirty we're on your
1: side. Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: exactly. Yeah, and the, and that they could be vulnerable with us and that we wouldn't like mm-hmm. twist that in in the way that like so many of us are used to having our right. words twisted when we talk on the record about these mm-hmm. things. At the end of this, basically, we want to talk about, you know, where does this leave us and how do we move on? But also I am in this headspace of like we just had the Uvalde massacre where in, in Texas a couple of days ago, 21 people were killed at an elementary school. Most of them were children around the age of nine and ten. And just this unbelievably unrelenting wave of gun violence in this country that I just don't, I just don't have words to even address anymore. And like, I think many of us are just feeling like we're at this limit of exhaustion and anger and like sadness where we don't really even know what to do anymore because the people who have the power to change those things are basically holding the rest of the country hostage because they want more money in their pockets from the NRA. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I've been seeing people say like, oh, you need to call this terrorism. This has to be dealt with as terrorism. And like, whenever an act of public violence like this happens and it's not a Muslim, there are always these calls of like, this is terrorism. Why don't we also call this terrorism? Like be fair, like white nationalism is also terrorism. And like, on one hand, I 100% agree with that. Mm. And on the other hand, I really am worried about how this is just going to strengthen the anti-terror, quote unquote, anti-terror infrastructures and policies that have harmed so many people in this country and around the world for the last 20 years. Um, and which show no signs of going away. And if we continue to like create more laws and policies that are couched in this sort of anti terror language that is all about taking shortcuts toward punishment and violence and incarceration and execution and war that like conveniently sidestep things like the writ of habeas corpus and, uh, you know, Miranda protections and the right to a fair trial in front of a jury and like all of the civil liberties that, you know, like we, we used to at least profess to uphold, even though it was imperfect, you know, it was very imperfect. I'm not saying that it was great. Like there's a lot of problems with our justice system. And I know like other justice systems around the world, but I just see us going down a very scary path. And like, I don't know how we can come back from that if we continue to uphold these like narratives about terrorism. I don't I don't know if we can go back to a place where we just treat murder as murder. Mm. Or if that's even something that makes sense. Like maybe instead of terrorism we should talk about hate crimes instead. Right. I don't know. It's very thorny. Like in some
1: ways expanding this umbrella of terrorism kind of erases the gravity of the crimes right and the nuance of what each different thing is
0: yeah but I'm also you know one of the things that I've been noticing in recent years is that there's this um impulse among and I have issues with like the whole binary between like liberal and conservative and left and right and all of that I think that's can often be a false binary of just people doing their in-group stuff. But mm-hmm. there has been a weird impulse among like so-called left-leaning people to um, all of a sudden be like on the side of of the government. Like if the government is telling you it's good, you should do it. And I think it's like a reaction to all of these extreme right-wing people who are basically like, we don't need the government Um, we don't want to wear masks. We don't believe in vaccines. We don't want gun control. Um, we don't want any kind of regulation on the economy. Welfare is, you know, garbage, no social safety nets, like all this stuff of just like, because there is this extreme push to kind of dismantle all of these regulations, like environmental regulations to fight climate change, like so many things, um, except, but you have to ban abortion. (laughs) I can't, you know, that one is a weird exception. But like, I think there's like this weird reaction among people who don't agree with all of that to be like everything the government does is good and it's there to protect us, which is a dangerous thing to do. I mean, it's a symptom of people who can't
1: imagine existing beyond the system. And maybe that's what we need. Like we need to be more creative. We need to be more imaginative. We need to be able to imagine a world that isn't constricted by like one thing or the other thing but something that is completely different but also who's got the energy for that (laughs) that's probably not the way to approach it but like that is how I feel yeah I don't know if this conversation was at all useful (laughs) Every time you sit down to have this conversation, you may be like, I want this to, like, you know, this is solution-oriented, this is hopeful, this is optimistic. But at the end of the day, you kind of hit against the wall of the problems that are, you know, they are insurmountable in some ways. And we rehash the same points over and over again. I mean, I literally said this like 10 minutes ago, that the particulars change but the sort of general structure remains the same, so I I guess maybe the future is that we need to find a way to break the the cycle of sort of going up the same up and down the same roller coaster. It's time for a different ride, though. How to realize that is something that we pr- I'm probably going to leave to the younguns because I'm tired.
0: Yeah, well, I think they we get- keep
1: returning to being tired. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, I think so I can really only speak to the American context and a little bit to the Canadian context, since those are the countries that like I'm from and where I've lived and gotten educated and stuff. I think what really harms us are these deeply embedded and entrenched parties that are kind of um, reinforcing and passing around power amongst themselves with really no regard to what is best for, you know, regular citizens. And we need to like break out of that sort of toxic, especially here. Like the way that the two-party system works or, or like doesn't work is it's so it's so toxic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I know everyone this is like what everyone's talking about now. It's like everyone is so polarized. But like I think the only solution to that is just to go more local. In the way that we are trying to change things in our neighborhoods, in our in our towns, in our cities, in our schools, like I think that's where we can make the most impact. And like when it comes to the national politics of the whole country, like the people who have their chokehold on that kind of power are not gonna let it go anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And the only real way for us to change that is massive, extremely powerful grassroots movements.
1: And also to not think that that's someone else's job, because otherwise you'll all be sitting around thinking, well, that's someone else's job. And maybe it's our own jobs, like, do what you can do. Use the skills and talents and knowledge and positions that you have in your life.
0: Right. And your small circle of influence, right? Exactly. I mean, as Muslims, that's really all that we are expected to do is to work against injustice and in the service of truth and justice as much as we can but we're not we're not responsible for carrying the whole world on our shoulders right and we're not going to answer for that and we're not responsible for whether that
1: works out or not you just do your part you know the horn will blow for the day of judgment and if you're planting a seed you're meant to finish planting it and i think because
0: that fight is so difficult that's the real jihad Oh my God, I said it. You said the J word.
1: <laughs> that is a word we do not say, Anisa, but well done. And I think this is where we should leave it. Plant your seed, do your work, have hope, and alone is best.
0: You got to keep planting your tree, even if the apocalypse is on the horizon. Before we end, I just want to say a heartfelt thank you to all of our listeners. I mean, we had a small audience, but the response that we got. From y'all was so warm, so supportive, so beautiful. Um, And I, I didn't know if non-Muslims would be interested in this, but non-Muslims were also listening and sending us really kind words and thoughts and support like monetary support. I didn't know if, you know, these stories would, would touch you guys, but it did. And like, we got some really beautiful emails from people about like your experiences as a Muslim post 9-11 and it's just been really, really lovely. And it's been, I don't know, it's felt really intimate in a really Mm -hmm. nice way. Um, and so even if you just listened and you never tweeted at us or emailed us, but you just kept listening, we still see you and we appreciate you. Uh, cause we can't actually see you like in the, we see you with (laughs) a (laughs) hug. No, but I mean in the stats, we can see you as well. So (laughs) we still appreciate you. Um, and we don't know if we're going to do another season of Muslim in Plain Sight. If we do, it won't be about this topic. I think this title can apply to a lot of things. So if we do get inspired for another with another topic for another season, then we'll see y'all then. Inshallah. Um, and yeah, please end us with a du'a, Deja.
1: Subhanakallahumma, bihamdik, ashadu an ilaha illa anta astakroka wa tawubu la hawla wa la <laughs> quwwata illa billah the khair and thank you everyone for listening. As always, although the season has closed, um, Alhamdulillah, we made it. You can still follow us on Twitter at MipsPod, M-I-P-S-P-O-D.
0: Yes. And we will definitely update if, you know, there's more episodes coming on there. So keep an eye on that. Um, you can email us at musliminplainsight at gmail.com.
1: And you can still subscribe to the podcast at MuslimInPlainsight.com. And so if we do make a new season, you will be the first to know.
0: And that is it. That's it. It's hard to say goodbye, but this is it for now. Assalamu alaikum. alaikum. As-salamu Wait, should I say wa alaikum, salam? <laughs> no, that was good. <laughs> okay. <laughs>